0: The Center for International Governance Innovation sat down with BuzzFeed News after the media outlet, better known for cat gifs and listicles, took the world by surprise with a monster 10,000-word series by Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Chris Hamby on the Investor State Dispute Resolution System, ISDS, which is a long-running subject of scholarship at CG. If you could just outline for our listeners what the crux of your in- investigation into the Investor State Dispute Settlement System uh, resulted in.
1: We did uh, an 18-month investigation into this and sort of tried to delve into some of the areas of the system that have not received as much attention or that have been tough to get at because uh, it's difficult to obtain information uh, regarding confidential proceedings. So the key things that uh, we found uh, would be that, you know, one, the first sort of surprising use of this system is uh, by uh, people who have been accused or even convicted of crimes who have used it to uh, avoid the punishment associated with those uh, crimes. The other would be the uh, that the mere threat of a claim is becoming a very powerful and effective tool to affect public policy. Um, because of sort of the quirks of this system. And then we went on to also explore the way that uh, the financial industry has, has really gotten involved in a major way in this, uh, both in bringing claims and in finding uh, other ways to profit from claims, whether that's funding them on the front end or creating sort of a secondary market for actually trading uh, these claims in their entirety.
0: And I'm always curious from a journalistic perspective, how did you personally um, get clued into that this was happening? Like what was the spark behind you wanting to look into the ISDS?
1: It really started a lot of stories begin with um, either someone telling me something, you know, a person who knows uh, who's particularly well-informed source or uh, reading something that I sort of look at it and say, that's unusual. I'd like to learn more about that. And that seems um like there might be more there. So, I believe this began when I saw an article. Um, it was in, focused on an environmental issue in El Salvador uh, over a mining dispute, um, but it, it had somewhere, I think, fairly deep down in the story that uh, the company had used uh, an investor state dispute settlement, they'd filed an ISDS claim. Uh, against the government of El Salvador, and I, I thought, well, that I was not even aware that there was a private justice system where a business could sue a an entire country before private arbitrators, and it would be largely conducted out of public view.
0: And and I think that's the thing that that's a really interesting angle to it, that there is all this documentation that came out that was previously confidential, as you said so yourself. And so I know this was a really long process, 18 months, 200 interviews, tens and tens of thousands of documents. But how how did the collection process go? How did you uh, compile all this information?
1: The first thing I wanted to do was really to understand how this system works. Um, because my belief in a lot of, a lot of things is that if, if you want to understand how, um, something might be, uh, not used properly, it's better to understand how it is intended to be used. So I did a lot of reading, um, just on the foundations of the system, the history of it and reading up on the types of cases, um, which the material about the actual um, realities, the day-to-day realities of the system, are uh, pretty scarce. Um, It's more theoretical underpinning, so understanding that. Then getting in touch with um, the people who really know the system. And The difficult thing with this is that it's very fragmented, and there's not any one sort of definitive source. Uh, So it was just going to a lot of different practitioners in this field, talking to them, getting their views on that, getting as much information as possible about cases in which they were involved. Um, And then just through other sources also trying to gather information about cases and sort of compile this universe of, you know, what, what exists, the number of cases that exist, in this system and what the different ones look like and what they're actually fighting over, uh, what the disputes are are really about. And then, um, of course, then that took, uh, once I'd identified a few themes, you know, that's when you start to dig in, in in those areas in particular
0: but the documentation part is 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 super interesting because we are talking about a parajudicial system like we're talking about a, a system that just kind of operates parallel to all these other ones and and i was thinking about it do you file a request and if you do with who How how does that how does that work to actually get all this documentation aside from you know interviews and talking to these lawyers like there was no freedom of information system that you could go through
1: That's the issue with this, is that in in past work, I I do um, use freedom of information laws quite a bit. But they were, frankly, almost useless for this article because it is, as you said, it's a a private system, Um, either it it may be through the World Bank or the International Chamber of Commerce, or it might just be people gathering in a conference room in Singapore. Um, So you never really know. the, the problem here is, well, some of this stuff gets out. There is a, um, a sort of uh, definitive website that collects a lot of this stuff um, where leaked uh, materials will come out or the parties decide to make them public. So there is limited public available publicly available information on that. But the other is, I mean, the way I had to get a lot of information was find sort of other ways to, to get the information, which is in talking with people who were involved in these cases. And that might be the lawyer who was representing one of the uh, two sides, or it could be someone who has some other sort of tangential involvement in the case, but would have access to the documents and would be willing to share them. Um, and so that was mainly how I went about doing this.
0: So I read your follow up um, about Congress right now and Sa- um, Sandra Levin, who's on the Ways and Means Committee, uh, talking about how he doesn't want to vote for anything right now that would be TPP, but um, anything that kind of allows the ISDS to continue the way it currently exists.
1: It's interesting because this is a really critical period for this system. Um, what we saw was that this this really it traces its origins back to. Um, the 1950s, really, the theoretical underpinnings of this in a in large extent. And, and some of the institutions were created in the 60s. But this didn't really become a thing that anybody really used at all until the mid to late 1990s. So what we've seen since then is this explosion of cases. And I think now we're seeing as more and more information is coming out about this, um, it sort of reached a critical mass to where it's it's almost at, a, it seems like a, a critical point, of almost a breaking point here, where you have even one of the institutions, um, a UN trade and development body, uh, that previously promoted uh, this system and encouraged nations to uh, sign treaties, including this, is now saying that there is a, drastic need for reform and is somewhat leading the charge for that. Um, You have a backlash from some nations who are getting out of it. So there are possible ways forward. Uh, One would be, I mean, so some people advocate complete abolition of the system, which would be pretty difficult to accomplish, but it would be something that would be doable. Um, The European Union has proposed a uh, sort of a standing court. They call it an investment court. Um, and what they're, they're trying to sort of keep some of the basic arbitration model but also have a standing body of judges that are named by the uh, member states and an actual appellate process, which are two things that do not exist in the current sort of ad hoc system Um, And other people have various ideas, but um, a lot of people feel like as long as you keep that basic, even the investment court system and some of these proposed reforms, it's not possible to really fix this system because of the the basic flaws still remain. And I think one of the most important is that the really how do you fix the idea that this is an asymmetrical system? One side is always suing. Uh, the companies are the only ones who can sue and the countries can only be sued. Um, so how do you how do you address that without a, some sort of fundamental overhaul?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, because oversight only goes so far. I think I think one of the things that I thought that was, I mean, not even a main point of your of your piece, but that you had arbitrators also um, arguing on behalf of corporations and other instances. And I mean, you you talked about getting um, judges in. Would, do you think that that would add any kind of transparency or clarity to the system, or do you think that the overhaul needs to be more um, more deep and more and more systematic?
1: Well, it's hard to say, and I I don't know personally what the what the right answer is, and you know, it's not really my position as a reporter to take a, a, a stance on that. But, um, you know, I think that even if you, that that is one of the biggest complaints is that you have people who are, it's well known within the arbitration community, and they know that this is a big problem, uh, perception wise for them, and they have the term double hatting for it, where you will Um, essentially wear one hat uh, one day and a different hat the next day, in which one you're an arbitrator and next you're a lawyer. And they recognize that that looks like a problem, even if they believe it's not and they believe they have the proper safeguards. Um, So you could change that and have a standing body. You could try and rein in some of the uh, substantive protections that are provided for in these treaties. But... I think a lot of it ultimately gets back to, are, are people going to trust that private decision makers um, who really, uh, you know, in, in this, as part of this sort of asymmetrical process, as I described, are ever going to reach decisions that they find acceptable? And I'm not sure that that's possible.
0: You won uh, Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting, and then fairly quickly after that, you transferred to BuzzFeed. And I mean, I love BuzzFeed, but BuzzFeed is not known for its long form journalism, especially not when you transferred over and it wasn't known for its investigative journalism at the time either. A lot of people kind of thought that might have been a risk, but then you have this, this really long and, 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 and thorough piece of reporting that, that balances that. So I was just wondering, um, do you think that perception is changing? Do you think that the perception of what online journalism is, is changing or, or is it kind of a slower process?
1: No, I absolutely do think it's changing, but I don't think it's going to change overnight. Um, and you still get that sum uh, with people saying, you know, what the heck is BuzzFeed doing?
0: The cat gif thing?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I sometimes when I call and say I'm, I'm from BuzzFeed, it's sort of like, um, okay, why are you calling me? I thought you only did Kim Kardashian stories. Um, but... Uh, you know, I guess I would say first of all, I was not looking to leave my my position at the Center for Public Integrity, which is a wonderful place. It's a nonprofit investigative newsroom, and they allowed me to do a project on coal miners with black lung disease um, that that you mentioned. Um, and so, but I was very excited about the opportunity when uh, BuzzFeed approached me because um, I believed in the people uh, who they had hired they were they were making a serious investment in serious journalism as and and so i think the interesting thing for people is that you can have a a, a an online media organization that does both cat gifs and <laughs> very very long 18-month investigative stories and those two are not mutually exclusive and um, I think people are starting to, to come around uh, to that. We have one of the largest investigative teams in the country now. Uh, and, I mean, if you look at what other members of our team uh, and even just our, our, our news uh, department at BuzzFeed, what our reporters are doing is really breaking major stories um, that have serious impact and are, and are really um affecting people's lives and it's been interesting to see some of the comments on the stories. Um, uh, You know, the first story in this series that I wrote on ISDS, um, there were multiple comments that said it was sort of, you could sort of see heads exploding that this was on BuzzFeed's site, Um, but they were saying, you know, this is this is terrific and this is a positive development for the news business in general. Um, So that's encouraging.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Chris.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: To dive deeper into the research on the Investor-State Dispute Resolution System, visit the website of the Center for International Governance Innovation, cigionline.org, where you'll find extensive scholarship on the subject. And to read the full series by Chris Hamby, visit buzzfeed.com.